Welcome back to Documentary First, an inside look at a documentary filmmaker's journey. I'm your host, Jason Rugg, joined as always by Christian Taylor. Hey, Jason. And we have a very special guest with us, Christian. Yes, Gail Gilbert is with us. Gail, <laughs> welcome. Thank you very much. I really appreciate being here. Yeah, super nice to see you. Uh, Jason, why don't you read your bio? Yeah, so Gail had a successful career editing TV spots for national ad campaigns before deciding to switch gears and move into entertainment. Gail started by going to grad school for screenwriting and then made several award-winning short films. Now she splits her time between personal productions and episodic directing and editing. Puppy Love is her first feature film. Yeah, we're here to talk about Puppy Love. So uh, you're here because uh, of how we originally met. Uh, so why don't you talk about how we met and then, uh, you know, sort of your relationship with me since then. And then we'll get into talking about Puppy Love. Sounds good. Um, I met Christian at the Julian Dubuque International Film Festival, which I think is like the most phenomenal film festival. I, I know. love it. No expectations when I got there. From the moment I actually got in the van, they had a van pick me up in Chicago, so I didn't even have to drive, which was even better. Um, the guy who was in the front seat of the van heard I made a documentary. And he, the first thing he said is, you need to meet Christian Taylor. I know she's going to be there. She's the woman you need to meet. And so from the moment I get to Dubuque, which was, I think, like on a Tuesday, I'm like, who the hell is, who's Christian Taylor? And I'm like, I got to meet this woman. And so finally we met at the awards. Gala. So yeah. It's like the last night of the festival. Yeah. And Christian gave me her card and I've been following her podcast ever since. <laughs> yeah. It's super nice. I know at least we have one listener out there. I really uh, enjoyed that you have found, you know, the documentary first podcast, you know, helpful because that's our whole reason for being there, that people are being here, that people will learn things, they'll pass them on to others. So we really appreciate you listening and sharing with others. And uh, now, you know, I asked you on here because you do have your uh, first documentary and it did play at the Julian Dubuque Film Festival. I didn't see it there, but you did share it with me later. I'm so thankful that you did. I do love dogs. I think this is a lovely, heartwarming story. So let's dive right in. Why don't you give us the log line and or synopsis, whichever you wish. Uh, and then we'll jump in to talk about the film. Well, Puppy Love is a documentary about four puppies who become paralyzed and their journey to recovery. So um, the log line is actually uh, a litter of paralyzed puppy unleashes the power of hope, commitment and love. Oh, that's beautiful. It's so true. <laughs> it absolutely summarizes exactly what the movie is about. And uh, it's just a, a beautiful story of those Three things, commitment, love, and I forgot the other one already. Hope. Hope. <laughs> Hope. <laughs> yeah. So tell us how this film started, um, when you began, and uh, just unpack all that for us. Well, I it started because I got a new puppy. And when you shoot, get a new puppy, you shoot video of them constantly. So I'm shooting video. I go to the breeder before I even get them. Then I go back to pick them up and then I bring them home. So I'm shooting video, shooting video. And the next thing I know, a week later, he starts stumbling around in the morning and I take him to the vet. And then she tells me to, he's that, that time at noon, he can't even walk. So she sends me off to a neurologist, which was like halfway to Iowa. And then by six o'clock, all he could do was blink and swallow. Mm. So the neurologist told me, um, just basically, here's some, we have no idea what this is. She did a barrage of tests. Here's some tranquilizer, uh, 
antibiotics. They were like, you know, the size of a tranquilizer and this little teeny tiny puppy. Give him these. And in 48 hours, if he's not any better, just go ahead and put him down. So I called the breeder, found out that she wasn't shocked. I thought she would kill me, but um, that three other dogs had the same problem. And she just told me to bring him back. So, so we all, uh, I, so I just hung out at her farm for, it's like an hour and a half from my house. I go there three or four times a week and kept shooting. And then finally I realized I should get somebody better than me to shoot it because it was so interesting what we were doing. I didn't really have any idea whether they'd get better, but it was kind of fascinating what these women were doing. And so I got a friend of mine who just got a new DSLR and then she got into it. So then she got a friend of hers who just graduated from Columbia College as a DP. And then, you know, we just kept on upping and upping our, our camera crew to the point where we actually had footage for a movie. Wow. I, I did wonder, you know, at what point you decided to start filming, um, because really this is a cinema verite shoot as we go, not (laughs) a lot of narration. It really is documenting this journey of the paralysis and what do you do afterward? Uh, And you're not sure um, all the way along the film, what the end of the story is going to be. So, did you decide to start shooting as soon as the paralysis began? Did you shoot much before? Talk to me about that. Well, really, I started from the minute I found out I could have a puppy. The breeder was my cousin, and she'd been breeding for 40 years, and I'd wanted one of her puppies since I was six years old, and she kept on telling me, no, 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 you're too busy, blah, blah, blah. And finally, she said, I'm going to have my last litter, and I'll save a yellow boy for you. So I was so excited to get this puppy finally that I was shooting video constantly of him. But when I, when I think what really happened was when one of the puppies actually was able to push his hind legs up, that's when I realized that we should get a better camera person. Because <laughs> <laughs> things were actually moving in a forward direction. And I, I don't think my cell phone or my friends at DSLR was really, you know, the best option. Yeah. So what is the footage a combination of? Do you have cell phone footage, you know, and, and what other cameras were used to make this film? Um, well, I only know I'm an editor, so I only know from what the files are labeled and what folders. <laughs> I don't really know cameras very well. So I know there was my cell phone in the beginning and the end, just a recap of what they looked like in the beginning. And um, then we had a 70. We had um, some type of a Sony that did these MXF files that Basically, most everything was um, some. The seventy, I think, was nineteen twenty, and then the Sony was like a four K, but four K from twenty twelve. So you know, things were weren't as good as they are now. Yeah. So when did you start this adventure? When when did you get that puppy? What year it was, was twenty twelve? And so I spent a whole year working on trying to make him walk. And so when he finally did walk, and he was healthy, and he was a year old. I pretty much shelved everything and had to get back to work because I didn't make money because I'm a film editor and I'd gone a whole year without making any money. And my clients would be in the office, kind of whatever clients I had helping me care for these puppies. And it was just kind of like a circus. So I had to kind of recap my reputation as a, as a serious editor and get some money. And then when COVID hit um, February of 2020, I just decided, why don't I pull this all together and actually cut it? Well, what I do think would have been incredibly challenging would be on that dual track of helping this puppy recover and 
trying to film it at the same time because when I watch <laughs> what you guys were doing, I mean, it's hard enough when you have a puppy that can walk uh, and that's running around and that goes to the bathroom on their own and that can eat on their own. Uh, I just could not imagine having a puppy that I had to watch 24 seven, help them go to the bathroom, come, you know, make all these uh, special foods, take them to all of these doctor visits. I mean, it just seems like to me, it would be all consuming during that time. So I can't fathom how you would work or even shoot what you were shooting. Well, luckily I had good camera people, you know, I would just say, Hey, can you come out to the farm for a day? And I don't tell them anything. I would just say, you know, I want to make sure I get close-ups. I, I mean, I would tell them little things once in a while, but it was mostly, you know, I kind of was hands-off trying to make sure that um, that they felt like they were contributing and that they were a big part of the project and that I wasn't micromanaging. So I do think that the paralysis began at either seven or 10 weeks. I can't remember which one. When uh, it was at eight weeks. Pretty at much, eight yeah. weeks. Okay. So when was your puppy walking again? How long did that process take? My puppy started walking, I think when he was, um, it was like two and a half months. So it, he, it was March 30th because of my sister's birthday. And I think he started walking the last week in May or the first week in June. Okay. Now, was yours? And that's one- walking with like one leg kind of stiff. Like he was, yeah. he looked totally dweeby. Which one is the name of yours? Scout. Scout. Yours is Scout. And Oliver was the one that was the most disabled, Correct. And he still is, but he is, oh my God, he's just such a bundle of happiness. And when he sees me, he comes running across the room. It's just crazy. That's beautiful. These puppies are just amazing, but he's a super happy boy. That's just, it's so heartwarming. What I thought was interesting about your documentary, like I said before, is it's not necessarily scripted out in that you have a script and you have a narrator and there are talking heads. This is not your documentary. This is, um, you know, sort of as we go, what's happening on the ground. And I did find, however, that most of the questions I was thinking in my brain that eventually in the conversations that were just being had in general, my questions were answered. Uh, So clearly you had to have some plan uh, and to make sure that you answered all the questions that your audience might have. So we're moving into talking about the script now and how you laid this story out. So talk to me about that process, because I'm sure you had tons of footage. You had to figure out how to put the story together. How did it all come together? Well, in between the time that I shot the film um, and when I started to edit it in 2020, I went to grad school and got a degree in screenwriting. So um, I pulled out, I, I personally am not a big documentary watcher. I've become it now, but I never really was because I've had a lot of people throw a bunch of footage at me and say, hey, can you make me my doc? Can you edit? My, can you edit my documentary? And basically they have no story. They have no idea what they're doing. They just think it's cool and they think there's a story. But as an editor, you have to create the story. You have to come up every, basically. And then they walk away and they put director on it. And I'm like, oh. so I've been kind of anti-doc my whole career until I had to make my own doc. So I pulled out the outline from screenwriting 101 of <laughs> what goes in a narrative screenplay. Cause I wanted most thing, most important thing to me was I wanted entertaining. So, um, I just, you know, by page eight, you got to have this happen. And by page 12, you have to have this happen. And so I just filled in the whole outline and then 
found, and then I looked at all the footage because I remembered the story, but I didn't really know the story. And then I looked at all the footage where I realized there was so much happened that I didn't even know we shot. Like I never looked at the footage because I had an assistant label it. And back then I had to make all my assistants transcode it to Apple ProRes, which was the stupidest waste of time. But anyway, we don't have to do that anymore. But um, so I had to look at all this footage and figure out how it would fit into my theoretical outline. Then I had to revise the outline to fit in what, what I had. But the most important thing was that, you know, I had a twist here and the midpoint happened at the right time. And I didn't want it longer than 96 minutes. I do think it was the per- perfect length. Um, oh, good. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I do think it was the perfect length uh, because you did, you know, get the story told in that amount of time. I think, you know, a little bit shorter and it may have been too short, a little longer would have been too long. Now I will say that uh, I was surprised by the ending. So we're not going to talk <laughs> about what the ending was, but I did not expect the ending. So at first I was like, hmm, that's an interesting ending. And then I was like, actually, that's a really good ending because it's not what I expected, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. so, so that yeah. was really cool. There were some twists in there. And uh, tell me what you're most proud of in terms of the story writing piece. Well, actually, I t- I wanted it no longer than 96, and I cut it down to 86 for Julian Dubuque, and then I cut it down to 76 for my last festival. So I'm pretty happy with what you just saw is actually 76 minutes, which I ah. think is the primo length for a documentary because I've seen so many that are longer. But um, I think the thing I'm most proud of is having people come up to me and just First of all, hearing people cry and laugh at the right times when you're in a screening, that's just so powerful. It is. But just hearing how it impacts other people's lives and how it changes people's lives. I've had so many people go to Raw because of my movie, Raw, Raw Food for Their Dogs. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There was a lot of talk in there. I did think it was interesting, uh, all of the methods you try. And I think it is important to say here that to this day, nobody really knows why it happened and why it was solved. I do tend to believe that if you guys had not done everything you had done, there's no way that the puppies would have been healed. So it had to have been a combination of all of that. I certainly think that if you didn't step in and intervene, they would have never been healed. Yeah, they couldn't eat. You know, we had to yeah. op- pry up in their mouth and stick a stir- syringe in. Wow. So, um, yeah, they, they would have just died. They would have starved to death. I mean, it truly is a testament to... A, what humans are willing to do to preserve life and self-sacrifice on the part of those people that just really wanted to preserve life. You know, you had to give up your work and you did have to probably relationships had to take a back seat. (laughs) I know that there were a lot of sacrifices that you had to make to give that dog life. But what a beautiful example of, um, you know, of that sacrificial love. (laughs) <laughs> well, and also, I think it's not so much just about humans against uh, how they take care of animals. It's really a human story. Yeah. Because I've had a lot of people at screenings come up and talk about how they decided not to give up on a loved one that's a human yeah. and how the story really touched them. So it's really about how not giving up is a choice. Right. And it's um, and the power of of really sticking to it. Well, and we have seen that. I mean, story after story I've heard with, you know, children who are struggling when they are young with some sort of illness or people that are sick when they are older. I mean, it is that love and that help from one 
human to another or one human to an animal, I think that um, is this intangible quality that um, helps us to press on and to get better. Uh, So Mm -hmm. that is a beautiful thing to see in your film. Tell me what the hardest part was about making Puppy Love. Um, I don't know. Seeing when they really were bad, I I couldn't even look at it. You know, I, I, I'd have to turn away. Mm. Um, there, and especially Oliver, I, uh, the hardest part was when I told the breeder that I wouldn't, I, I wanted two weeks. She was going to put him down cause he, he was pretty much starving to death. And I said, just give me two weeks. And I went out to her house and I couldn't pick him up. He, he was just like bones. And it, it, I mean, he just looked and she just basically said, you either pick him up and take him home or I'm taking him to the vet. And so uh, that was, that was pretty much the hardest thing, but it wasn't really the filmmaking aspect. It was just, um, you know, just being in that process. And, um, and I wasn't thinking about the film at all, actually. I just having to pick up an animal that was so far gone, but um, luckily my friend Amanda got him to walk and, He's a roly-poly boy now. <laughs> That's amazing. Tell me what you're most proud of with this film. Honestly, I'm most proud that it's done, you know, that it's out there <laughs> yeah. and that it has, it, people can watch it on Amazon. People can watch it on Apple TV. Just the idea that I started making this crazy movie and that it's actually done and out there. Yeah, you gave birth to it. And it really is <laughs> one of the most fulfilling things because people that start documentaries oftentimes do not finish them. They get left in someone's computer or, um, you know, people run out of time, they run out of money, then they run out of energy. So to get it accomplished is an enormous accomplishment. And then to get it distributed is the other hurdle. So talk to us about distribution and what that process was like, how you found it and, you know, kind of your whole journey with the distribution process. Well, luckily, um, I met Christian, (laughs) and you suggested that I reach out to your distributor. I had already gotten an offer from another distributor and um, and was in talks with another distributor, Um, but I just fell so in love with my conversations with Joe Amaday, and um, I did reach out to several other documentary filmmakers who randomly, I reached out to them just to find out who their distributor was and what they thought of that person. And they're like, oh, no, we go with virtual films. I'm like, oh, my God. So um, I feel really comfortable with my distribution. I mean, we just released yesterday. And so it's, you know, we're new in the whole thing, but everyone has been fabulous. And, um, and I owe it all to documentary first. (laughs) <laughs> well, I can't speak highly enough about Joe. Of course, we did have a terrible experience um, with our first distributor. But I think for me, the relationship with the distribution owner is vital. And what I feel so great about Joe is that I can text, I can call, they answer my call, and they will schedule a meeting and just talk me through what has been happening with the film all the way along. And they're Mm -hmm. open to ideas. If I have other ideas about how I can market it, uh, then they're open to that. Uh, They are open to, um, you know, they send their reports. I mean, I've now been with Joe for quarter four, one and two. Uh, They have sent their reports. I think there was one time where uh, it was late because Kelly, who sends them out, was having a baby. Uh, But as soon as I wrote and said, hey, I think this is due, she sent it right away. So 
it's just that kind of relationship I think is crucial because you're in this relationship for a long period of time. And that trust has to be there, I think, for there to be success. And we're in a terribly difficult time for independent distribution of films. And to just have somebody there that's been there for over 50 years, I think, uh, gives me a lot of confidence. So I'm super glad that you're happy. I hope that that continues. Um, you know, I just, I'm glad your movie has released. I remember how exciting that was. Uh, tell me how that is going, because I think you just recently started your film festival run, right? Is that true? Well, yeah. Well, I started with Dubuque, which was in April. We're now in October. So I've had three festivals um, so actually, I just, I was still editing. Ever since Dubuque, I decided I need to tighten the movie up. So I really spent the summer focusing on trimming the movie down. I reworked the opening title sequence to give it a little more energy. You know, there was just things as an editor, I watched it in the big screen. I'm like, oh. So um, now I'm really ready to dive in more seriously about um, submitting to festivals. But um, I'm just so excited. I, I am also looking into theatrical. Yeah, the having the dogs there, I can imagine, is just phenomenal. I didn't get to see them at JDF, but I heard about it, and people just were raving about the experience, being able to watch the film and see the dogs. Which dogs joined you at these film festivals? It was uh, Shooter, Oliver, and Scout. Oh, so three of them. Yeah, oh, unfortunately, Red, one of the dogs got cancer last year and oh, yeah. um, had a really long battle, not related to the paralysis or anything, but he, he passed away a year ago. Oh, it's hard. So there's only three friends. Yeah. Um, They have short lives. They have very short lives. Yeah, they do for sure. Well, um, you know, the last thing I wanted to talk to you about is I always ask filmmakers, what lessons can you share with our listeners? So let's start (laughs) with um, first what the challenges are and what you you know, you would say to a young filmmaker, you know, make sure you don't do this or make sure you do do this. Um, well, I think have a clear idea of what you want to get out of something before you start it and what your end goals are so that you're not um, kind of just going off in different directions all the time. I think you really need to have a plan. And I also think, um, you know, you always say that line that you always quote, um, keep keep moving forward one step ahead. I don't know what your line is, but I think about that all the time. I just got to keep putting one foot in front of the other and you you have to do a little bit every day. That's the other thing that I think is really important. When I started cutting this movie, I got up at five o'clock in the morning every day and I felt like, uh, because I had a job. I mean, I was still cutting and I still had work, even though it's COVID, I still had work. Um, so I um, think it's really important that you pick up the instrument every day, which is, if you're making a movie, that means you need to think about your format every day. Think about your script every day. When you're shooting, you need to be making sure you, you know, you're thinking about the film every day. And when it gets to post, that means you're going to be editing every day. So I made sure I edited anywhere from a half an hour to five or six hours a day um, just to make sure that your brain is in it. I think you can easily walk away for a few days and then it takes you another two days to get back in it. So I think it's really important to, um, just maintain contact with whatever project you have every single day. I couldn't um, agree with that more. Yeah. It's crazy how you lose focus. Well, that ramp up time, like for a creative, that's the thing. When I get there, I don't want to stop. 
because you, there is this like on ramp and it takes you a little bit to like hit this creative peak. And then once you get there, you can work for a good amount of time and yeah, you can go to sleep. But if you wake back up, you're kind of still in that zone. But if you put it down for like two or three days, uh, it, then you got to do the ramp up again. And that just throws your momentum off, you know, mm-hmm. completely. Now you yeah. said something earlier too about, um, shooting when you're shooting, don't do what? Oh, don't ever delete. I have a lot of, uh, I taught for a little while at flashpoint Academy, which is in the loop in the city. Um, and I had a lot of young people because they just think, oh, I'm never going to use that or whatever. Even when they're shooting or when they're cutting, they would just delete files. And I think it's super important to just save everything. In today's age, storage is cheap. There's no no harm done and just making yourself a garbage folder or whatever. But don't ever throw files out until you're really done with it, until it's on the big screen and it got distribution. Because you never know when there's, there's I had a few um, few scenes that I didn't, think were good or they, they weren't valuable or they wouldn't add anything to the movie that are pivotal, just pivotal to the film. One is like the, um, the, uh, the chiropractor. There's a scene where we, a chiropractor comes to the breeder's house and she's working on the puppies and she had been adamant about not being in the movie. She didn't want to be shot. She didn't want to be in the movie. She didn't want to be anything to do with it. She worked for free on these puppies for like six months, four times a week, but she didn't want to be on camera or in a movie. So cut to 2021 now, I already have a rough cut. And I'm like, you know, my dog kind of is limping. I should go look up that chiropractor again because I just cut the scene and it was amazing. So I make an appointment with her. I have to drive an hour and a half out to see her. And I said, you know, I finished that movie we were shooting and I'd really like to put you in it if you wouldn't mind. She goes, oh, what do you mean? And I open up my computer and I show her. It was, I made it like five minutes and I think, and now it's only like two and a half minutes. I mean, I keep cutting things down, but she looked at it and she goes, oh yeah, that's fine. And so I pull out of my computer bag, my release form. I'm like, well, would you mind signing this? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's awesome. That's awesome. So things that you think people have said no about or things that you don't think have value could have huge value in the end. So I wouldn't throw anything out. Now you also said something about keep the cameras rolling. Yeah, for sure. Um, as much as as an editor, I hate directors who just like, oh, let's try this way. Let's try. I think in narrative situations, I don't think that's so smart. But in a documentary situation, there's so many things. I think you need um, ambiance. You need um, uh, the context. And so a lot of times when the camera is like not shooting the action, but just kind of panning the scene or whatever, it helps in the edit to tell the story better because you're getting context for whatever that action is. So I I, I think there's so much value in just keeping the cameras rolling if you can or um, or thinking about consciously shooting when there's no action. That's actually more important. Shooting when there's no action so that you get the setting, you get the quietness, you get whatever is leading up to whatever's going to about to happen. And so many people don't do that. And I think I did it haphazardly by accident and I saw a lot of value in that. Yeah. And also audio. I think there was a good lesson you had to share with <laughs> keeping the audio rolling. Ta- tell us about that. Well, in the very the center of the movie, based on my script, um, we go to we find a, a holistic vet that we go to visit, and so and she was kind enough to be wired. She was wearing a lav and be, take part in this film, and she of course signed the release right away. And she's now 
totally on board with the film. She loves the movie. But um, she was loved up. And then she sent us off to go see her, her massage therapist. And she went off to review all the files and all the tests and all the x-rays and everything and dictate her medical report to her assistant. So that was all captured on audio. That was it was just priceless. I mean, I think it really drives home the point of what was going on in these dogs' bodies from a very black and white med- medical way using straightforward terminology. Can you talk to me about um, sponsorship? Because I think you have uh, developed a relationship with a sponsor. Talk about how that came about, um, how that's benefited them, how it's benefited you. Well, it because it came about because I was listening to a documentary first and you mentioned how you have all these sponsorships and they seem to really up your game as far as who watches your movie, where you get screenings. And and then I talked to another filmmaker who was talking about his experience with sponsorships. So I reached out to when we're visiting that vet, she says, you can got to switch these dogs over to raw. And she suggested a raw company that sends you food frozen. Because of course, I'm like, I don't I don't know how to do it. So uh, she said, you need to use Darwin's raw food. So I started ordering it. Um, I ordered it for all the dogs just to find out what, mostly for Oliver, but I ordered it for my dogs. I ordered it for all the other dogs and it comes however often you want. It's like every three weeks, I think I have mindset and he's been on it since that day, which was July 7th, 2012. <laughs> and he's now 11 and he just ran a hunt test. He runs hundred yard marks. He is at the prime of his life. Actually, he's in, I think the best shape he's ever been in. He's like, I got him to lose a little weight. So he's, he's just super nimble. And he always shocks people at these hunt tests. They're like, how do you mean he can't be 11 years old? But, um, I decided I was, went to the dog show. The Labrador nationals was outside Seattle this year and Darwin's is set in Seattle. They, that's where they manufacture. So I reached out to the owner and said, I'd really like to talk to you about my movie. And I had a meeting with them and they are all on board because truly Darwin's is one of the reasons why he's healthy and why he's alive today. Yeah. I think it's great publicity for them for sure. Um, how did you pitch them, um, you know, to sponsor what, what, could they offer you that would be helpful to you? Cause it's certainly clear to me how you can be helpful to them. Um, well, what I asked for them is, is publicity. They've sent it out to all their brand ambassadors and all their um, influencers. And they have a whole roster of vets who they communicate with regularly. So they are pushing the film out to their peeps, their community and um, what I'm offering them is just a, a case study of how Darwin's helped. So I'm hoping now that I'm back home and I'm not traveling, I was traveling for the last three weeks since I met them, the uh, start shooting shots of my dog and have him be a brand ambassador for them. Oh, that's beautiful. Can you tell us how much this film costs to make? Uh, and, you know, did you... Uh, did you feel like you stayed within budget? Did you go over budget? Were you surprised how much you could do on so little? Talk to us about the the financial piece of making this film. Well, there was no budget because I was just shooting constantly and I was focused on the dogs. Um, the most expensive thing during the production was going, we drove down to St. Louis for the Labrador Nationals. So I had to, I had to fly because I had a job. I had to get back to cut a job the next day. And my assistant 
Amanda had to drive. And so it's hotel and travel. And I paid the cameraman that those for those days, they had to travel, pay for their hotel. And that wasn't anything compared to the vet bill for the vet who's in the film. (laughs) I bet. So, I mean, that was something, but the vet bill was like, oh my God. But anyway, she's important part of the film. So those are the two expenses during the shoot. Um, So basically everyone volunteered their time. Everyone volunteered their talent and their, I got a friend of mine lend me his camera and all his equipment. Um, And then, so basically it got down to, so basically just, I would say the whole film production wise because everyone donated their time and I worked for free production wise was under $10,000, maybe, maybe under 15, probably more like under 15. Um, And then post I did for free. And then I got a friend of mine to give me all of his music for free. And he did the audio mix for free. And then another friend of mine did the color correction for free. And then another friend of mine designed all the titles. I had to pay her daughter like $30 an hour to actually set them. So that was like $400. So um, I owe all these people. If I make any money from distribution, it's going to go to pay back all these people. Yeah, you. It's good to have friends in the industry, that's for sure. Uh, and it's really nice that you have a marketable skill so that you can help them, and that you did not overspend in what you were doing in terms of the production piece of it. Uh, because I think in this day and age, the lower you keep your budgets. The, you know, the more possible it is for you to make a return on your investment. Did you completely self-fund or did you do a GoFundMe for what you did have to spend? We tried a Kickstarter or Indiegogo or something back in 2012 because I was going to, I didn't want to edit it. I wanted somebody else to edit it. So I was trying to get money to pay for editorial. And basically we got enough money to pay for that vet bill. Well, that is an important thing. <laughs> and the only reason we got it was because my friend Amanda's mom gave it, donated. <laughs> so she's an executive producer on the film because that was the level that she donated on. So you, <laughs> this really was a grassroots effort, um, a labor of love, kind of like the girl who wore freedom, uh, where everybody is all in and seeing this come to fruition. Um, if If you could do anything over, would would you do anything over or what would you do? Um, I would, I wouldn't, I'd probably use better cameras, you know, who knows, you know, yeah. better miking. We shot outside and wind a lot, which was amazing. That audio podcast you had of those guys who could clean up that audio blew my mind. So <laughs> I did. And I think that was before my mix was done or I can't remember, but then I got my mix back and I'm like, Oh my God, he got rid of all that noise. Like the wind noise was insane. Yeah. And my, my mixer was able to get rid of a lot of it, which blew my mind. But I think, um, yeah, I love that podcast when you had the audio guys talk about what they can and cannot do. Yeah, they are magicians. They really are. And sound is so super important. So I never think that should be skipped on. Uh, well, tell us what the future is for this film. What do you got coming up? Well, um, I'm actually trying to get a screening at the Museum of the Dog in New York City. Wow. It's an AKC museum, American Kennel Club. Um, and the American Kennel Club is what all the different events that my dogs do, the tracking, the hunt work, the obedience, the agility, all those different um, competitions are all organized by the AKC. So um, it's it's a, a, an, a, 
a group that I'm really familiar with and I really respect a lot. So that's my, I haven't done anything. I still doesn't say I want to do this. So I got to reach out to them and see how I can get this screening going. <laughs> uh, I really hope you can. Are there any film festivals in your future? Um, no, I've applied to like six that I won't hear back till, till like January. So yeah. I don't know. It takes a while. Well, good. So you've got some time to enjoy your release. Uh, we do mm-hmm. wish you the best with that. Um, you know, I think it's going to be a fun ride. You're sort of right at the beginning of uh, of the runway, as David Patterson used to say, and uh, your plane is, is just now taking off. So we do wish you the best for that. Now, before we let you go, I really do uh, want to, we're going to launch into our favorite segment, DocuView Deja Vu. And you are going to take over for Jason and I this weekend or this week, because I think you've got two documentaries you can talk about. I have to Google one of them though. Yeah, but I do. I just went to the IDA um, film fall docs festival in Los Angeles. And I saw two incredible documentaries um, that had Q and A's after them. Um, One was by Errol Morris. It's his latest movie called the pigeon tunnel. Hmm. And it is about Jean Le Carré, the author. And it was super powerfully shot because all the interviews were done with mirrors and reflection and refractions all around all the different people, which was all about the multiple, you know, lives that these people live as spies. And um, it was just, it was just shocking how powerfully it was shot and his Questions were kind of like, eh, eh, eh. Errol Morris was just like right in his face. But at the same time, I just felt like it went around in circles. It repeated itself a lot. And I was like, oh, somebody needed to tell Errol he was not doing the best thing. You know, like I felt like he's gotten to be so big that there's everybody's a yes man. Nobody nobody would say, mm, I don't think you need to talk about the dad one more time. You've already talked about him 10 times. Yes. I think he's a he makes beautiful films. He has great ideas. But he needs somebody to say no. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Cutting your babies, I think, is is challenging. And it does um, involve, I think, other people telling you what you can get rid of because it's really rough to do that for sure. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what else do you have to recommend? Well, the other one was about free diving. I don't know, Jason. I don't know if you could look it up. It's um, a friend of mine just saw it on, I think, Netflix. And she was excited about it. It's something I never – I didn't even know what it is. These people – dive like under in the ocean and hold, hold their breath. And it's all about, it's a competition just to see how far down you can go like 150 yards or whatever. I don't know. I mean, like, these people are going and it, it's a life threatening sport. It's very, it's an extreme sport to the extreme. And uh, it's a beautifully shot documentary. And I, I think it's either Netflix or Apple TV or no. Uh, Amazon. Is it, Who is it? Uh, the deepest breath. Yeah. On Netflix. Yeah. Netflix. On Netflix. Yeah. And so it's just beautiful. It's engaging. It's young people in swimsuits. It's, you know, everything is a lot of healthy people. And it's, it, it's a world that I don't, I'd never heard of it. So it's a, it's a, it's a deep dive into a, a new world and it's beautifully made. Uh, that is what is incredibly wonderful about documentaries that you learn a whole new world when you watch them, things that never existed before. Uh, that's why I love them. Do you, uh, watch more documentaries now after going through this experience? Yeah, oh, for sure. For sure. When that one came out with, uh, 
uh, Robert Downey Jr. about his dad. Yeah. I had to watch that immediately. And I was like, you know, really impressed that he took the time to do it. And it, it was, it was, you know, revealing. It wasn't, you know, a piece of yeah. cake for him, I'm sure. For sure. Um, so a last question for you. Uh, if people are interested in having you edit for them, do you feel now like you can edit a documentary uh, in a new way or a better way? Do you enjoy editing documentaries or do you prefer uh, sort of in living in the commercial world? No, no. I Well, I, I'm pretty much out of the commercial world. I do episodic now, but um, I am so excited about, especially seeing more documentaries. I have a whole different approach to them. And um, especially, I don't think they need to be as linear as most of them are. Yeah. And um, yeah, a friend of mine, I'm actually uh, talking to a friend of mine about helping cut a documentary that he started that um, is very controversial. So I'm excited to be involved. That's cool. <laughs> Where would people find you if they wanted to hire you as an editor? Well, I have a, a website, gailgilbert.com. Um, or they can go to the puppy love page, which is always a good place to find me because I'm the one who runs the page. You'll get me. <laughs> it's puppylovefilm.com. And you can reach out that way. And I'm hoping to have more screenings in the Chicago area. I think, I think, you know, to have little theaters and have screenings would be good. But yeah, I would love to hear from anybody who has documentary ideas. Well, thank you so much for coming here today, taking time with us. We really appreciate it. I'm super excited for your success with Puppy Love. I'm delighted that you have a sponsor relationship now. I just couldn't be happier for you. So thank you for spending your time with us today, sharing your experience. And we wish you all the best with this film. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I just want to mention that it is available on Amazon. I don't know if you talked about that. That's yeah, Amazon and Apple it. TV. Yeah, yeah, tell us that. So um, it, the big thing is we got to search in, um, in Amazon and Apple TV uh, uh, for a documentary, not a rom-com or a drama or a faith-based drama or anything. There's a lot of puppy loves out there. So it's the documentary. I did see and, that. Uh, I was Googling and I there is a puppy love narrative that comes out this year. So that's mm -hmm. challenging. No, I mean, I think it just more people will be looking for puppy love. They might that's choose mine. <laughs> That's the, that's the upside of it for sure. Yeah. yeah. And well, is there anything else you'd like us to know before we head out of here? Just, I think your podcast is fantastic. I learned so much. I hope people will go back and listen to other episodes. The one about the music cue sheet was amazing. The one with the guys who made the human footprint was amazing. Hearing yeah. about their challenges in production. Um, I just heard the one with Andrew Co Cohen. I think it yeah. is. Uh, yeah. uh, Impact 24 PR. That, changed my whole perspective on PR. So um, I, I'm, I can't tell, I, I always send your uh, podcast to more people. And anyway, I love your podcast. Thank you. That means so much to me. Let's talk real quick about Andrew Cohen, because after, <laughs> after you listen to that podcast, you're like, oh man, that's better than the two PR things that I have going on. Talk to me about why you felt like you needed to get a new PR person. What were they not doing that you hope Andrew will do? Well, the thing that Andrew said, which I just was, was fascinating, was that he basically, I have to just go a little pretext. I listened to him on the way back from a hunt test. I have a two hour drive. On the way to the hunt test, 
my son happened to be in town and said, oh, I'll go with you because he doesn't, nobody knows what I do when I go to these hunt tests. So he's in the car with me and we're in, it's seven o'clock in the morning on a Saturday. And I'm like, oh my God, you got to help me remember at 10 o'clock, I got a Zoom interview for some podcast and I, you know, I don't want to miss it. And I'm going to get so caught up in the dogs and blah, blah, blah. He goes, okay, well, I'm, well, what are you going to say? And I was like, well, oh, I'm just going to answer his questions. He goes, no, 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 no. You got to make sure the stuff fall, falls out of your mouth. You got to get your phrases right. You got to come up. And he just quiz me the whole way there. And he came up with three points that I had to like hit. And I had to to think of the phrasing and I had to make sure my intonation was correct. And I had to smile, not look like Ron DeSantis, but I had to smile. And I had, I mean, he just went on and on and on with all that. He just hammered it in. And then of course I did the podcast. It was so easy because I'd been prepped and I was wearing full camo. There were dogs barking all around me. It was a perfect place to do a podcast. So then he falls asleep on the way home. So I put in my AirPods and I'm listening. I was like, oh, there's a new episode. I'll listen to the new episode. And it was Andrew Cohen. And the first thing he says is, well, when we get a new um, client, we have to make sure they do media training. We train them on what they need to say, how they say it, what their intonation is, what they want to get across. They need to take control of an interview and make sure that the, the whatever's being asked, they actually get the message out that they want to tell because the person doing the interview doesn't know their message. I mean, he went on and on and on about all the things my son had just done. And I'm like, well, my PR people didn't do that. Yeah, yeah. And then he talked about other things that he does, gets people on panels. I mean, he he was just so intelligent and thoughtful. Anyway, I, I can't wait to meet him. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm super happy that our podcast has been helpful. Thank you for uh, sharing it with others. My heart is that other people will get inspired to make the documentaries that are rumbling around in their heads, uh, that they will not quit and that they will learn new things along the way. So thanks for mm-hmm. helping share that. All right, Jason, we're almost out of time. You want to take us out? Yeah, all right. Thank you, Gail, so much for being here. This was so fun and interesting. And uh, thank you to everyone for listening to Documentary First, where we believe everyone has a story to tell and you can be the one to tell it. Yes, you can. Bye, everybody. The Documentary First podcast is a production of Documentary First Productions. Help us create more educational and inspiring filmmaking content and share more stories of service by supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash documentary first. Also, be sure to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts so more people can discover our awesome entertainment industry content as well as our moving historical stories and possibly learn some new things along the way. Bye, everybody.